It's really good to be with you tonight. I always enjoy sharing God's Word with this congregation, and it's a delight and privilege to be able to do that again. And tonight I'd like us to look at a passage of Scripture that I've been thinking about for for quite a few weeks, and um, I think fits in with the theme that we've just been looking at over the last few weeks, that of overcoming evil. Uh, This isn't part of the series, it's a standalone uh, sermon. Uh, I hope it complements what you've been looking at certainly hope it doesn't contradict anything that you've been looking at. But if you've got your Bible with you, why don't you turn or scroll to Ephesians chapter 6, a passage that Pastor Bevan referenced last week. Ephesians 6, and we're going to look at verses 10 through 24. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will be fearless and make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. This is God's word. I want us to consider this passage under three headings tonight, uh, who we fight, what we fight, and how we fight. But I guess before we dive into all of that, it's very important to recognize that there is a fight. After the September 11th attacks on the Twin Towers in America, the government commissioned a report into the incident to try and figure out how the attack could have occurred, how it could have been prevented, uh, come up with recommendations to prevent further attacks. Uh, The report was entitled The 9-11 Commission Report, the final report of the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States. It was very interesting, though, near the beginning of the report were these words. The most important failure was one of imagination. We do not believe leaders understood the gravity of the threat. I think that often the same is true in our own lives, that we don't recognize the gravity of the threat. The Christian life is not a picnic or a walk in the park. It's a battle. One pastor says, from cradle to grave, life is war. Your soul, your mind, your body, your family, your career, all are fields of conflict. The battle rages every day. We're in the thick of it. You see, the choice is not whether I will be a Christian soldier or a Christian civilian. It's whether I will be a prepared Christian soldier or an unprepared Christian soldier. Paul doesn't say here, well, bring the armor of God along with you on the off chance that you might need it. 
Rather, he says twice, you will need it. So put it on. Or as a meme I saw this week puts it, the days are evil, dress appropriately. (laughs) (laughs) Every day I need to remind myself there is a battle. So given the fact that there's a battle, who is it that we're fighting? Paul tells us in verse 12, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul doesn't say that we don't battle against flesh and blood, because he certainly did. There were people who'd imprisoned Paul and beaten Paul. There were false teachers who were opposing Paul. But Paul just recognized that beneath that, there is another power at work the devil, and his forces. Now, our world isn't particularly impressed with this idea of a devil who believes in a personal, intelligent, malevolent, evil force present in this world. But as I'll I'll mention again in a moment, if we're honest, we have to admit that there is a depth of evil in this world that cannot be explained outside of someone who seeks to steal and to kill and destroy human beings. I remember many years ago reading an article in the Reader's Digest. It was actually a condensed book, Mindhunter, um, on which the the new television series is based. Uh, In that, John Douglas, who'd hunted serial killers, said this at one point, anyone who doesn't believe that the devil roams this world has clearly never been part of a crime scene investigative team. Now, Paul doesn't go into a great deal of detail here as to who these rulers, authorities, powers, and spiritual forces are, and I think for good reason. The Bible warns us just to stay away from this stuff. If you look at 2 Peter 2 or the little book of Jude, you can see that it's possible to have too great an interest in these things. I think C.S. Lewis, the Cambridge professor, a former atheist, best known for his Narnia books, summarized the situation the best when he wrote this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence, and the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors, and hail a materialist, someone who doesn't believe in them, or a magician, someone who does and is excessively interested, with the same delight. So we won't go into too much detail, but notice two things. Firstly, Paul tells us that our enemy is powerful. Verse 12, he speaks about the powers of this dark world. Satan is powerful, not that we believe in dualism, that you've got this powerful God and this equally opposite uh, powerful devil um, sort of battling it out for control of the universe. John reminds us in 1 John 4, the one who is in you, God, is greater than the one who is in the world, the devil. But Satan is powerful. And we should therefore not ignore or underestimate him. One writer says that many, if not most, of our failures and defeats are due to our foolish self-confidence when we either disbelieve or forget how formidable our spiritual enemies are. And secondly, we're told that our enemy is evil. Paul speaks about the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I once read a book by Keith Richberg, uh, an American journalist. Let let me read to you uh, just a section of his book. 
says, I'm standing now on a 300-foot-long yellow metal bridge looking down over the Rosomo Falls in Tanzania, and the bodies are coming by, sometimes singly, sometimes in bunches of two or even three. Here I check my watch. One minute goes by, and a corpse. Another minute, another body. Two more minutes, another. And on it goes like that. A body every minute or two, and I stand there for an hour, counting, watching, waiting. Thirty bodies an hour, they tell me. Seven hundred every day. And it has been like this for several days. Richberg was describing his experience of Rwanda, beautiful mountainous country where two tribes, the Hutus and the Tutsis, had lived peacefully for decades in what was supposedly a Christian country. But in 1994, in a period of just 100 days, approximately 800,000 Tutsis were slaughtered by their Hutu neighbors. The genocide was low-tech. There weren't any bombs, not many guns, many machetes, farming implements. And so today, you can still see the scars of the war in those who were lucky enough just to lose a limb. Every news report that tried to sum up the situation used one word. It was this word, evil. It's not a particularly popular word in our world. Our society prefers words like dysfunctional or disease or defective. The word evil seems to have a value judgment to it, and we're told that we shouldn't judge anything. It's only when a country explodes into genocide or when a young lady trustingly walks into a post office and is raped and murdered that society is suddenly confronted with the reality they didn't think existed, and they don't know what to do with it. The world can't explain where evil comes from, but the Bible has no such problem. It speaks about spiritual beings who rebelled against God and fell, and it speaks about a man and a woman who rebelled against God and also fell and now have sin. And that stuff in our hearts, aggravated by the devil, is what makes the world the way it is. He is powerful. He is evil. He seeks to steal, kill, destroy, take us out. What is it though, that we're fighting in particular. Verse 11, Paul tells us that we're to take our stand against the devil's schemes. Uh, the word devil is the Greek word diabolos, where you get your word diabolical from. It means deceiver. The devil is a liar. The word Satan means accuser. And I guess those two words sum up the devil's schemes, that Satan attacks us through temptation and accusation. In temptation, Satan often gives me too high a view of myself, so I do things I shouldn't do. Pastor Timothy Keller is quite helpful in this regard. He lists some things that the devil does in temptation. The, the devil shows you the bait and hides the hook. He shows the short-term pleasure and hides the long-term misery. He gets me to rationalize sin as a virtue. It's not gossip, I'm just concerned. He shows you the sin of Christian leaders. Well, he did it, so it's no big deal. Nobody is really that pure. He overstresses the mercy of God. Do it. God will forgive you. 
That's his job. He shows you many bad people who seem to be living great lives. I might as well do it. Playing by the rules doesn't pay off. He gets you to compare one part of your life with another. Well, I'm doing really good over here, so this part doesn't really matter too much. Temptation. Higher view of myself than I should have. And then in accusation, Satan gives me too low a view of myself, so I do things I shouldn't. I've done it before, I might as well do it again. Never going to change. I might as well go ahead. Timothy Keller again. The devil causes you to obsess over past sins that have done damage that can't be undone. He makes you think that the troubles you're going through must be punishment. He makes you think that the inner struggles you could, that you have couldn't possibly be had by a Christian. If I were a real Christian, I wouldn't be having these thoughts and desires. So the devil's schemes consist of temptation, accusation. Well, let's go on and have a look at how we fight, the resources for battle. How do we face such a powerful, evil, scheming enemy? Well, there are two things. Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. So before we get to the specifics of this, let's just paint something of the bigger picture here. That little phrase, the armor of God, is so important. Grammatically, it's the same as the car of Andrew. <laughs> Andrew's car, the armor of God, God's armor, the armor belonging to God. So glad that uh, Grant didn't preach my whole sermon in his testimony. <laughs> but it's, uh, <laughs> it was really great. <laughs> Because it's so interesting, in, in the Old Testament, we read about God taking up each of the pieces of armor that are mentioned here in Ephesians chapter 6. It's amazing. It describes God taking up this armor in order to save his people, particularly in Isaiah when it comes to the Messiah, God himself, who's going to take up this armor. So just one example, Isaiah 59. There we read, the Lord put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head in order to come and save his people. So that God doesn't give us this armor and then send us off on our own. He's no armchair general. Jesus has worn this armor ahead of us. One writer puts it like this. Jesus wore God's armor all the way to the cross. Jesus stood firm against Satan's schemes throughout his earthly life and ministry. Each of those specific temptations to which we have given in this week, lust, gossip, anger, pride, self-exaltation, lying, coveting, is a temptation he faced and stared down in your place. What is more, Jesus laid his life down at the cross for you. Because of his victorious life, death, and resurrection, the same power that raised Christ up from the dead is now at work inside of you and me through the ongoing work of the Spirit, raising us up from spiritual death to new life. Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on His armor. Now, it doesn't mean that we just sit around in this armor. We have to take it up. And that's where the description of the individual pieces comes in now. And it's important for us because this gives us some practical steps to take, uh, how to apply these verses in our lives. And let's look real quick. Firstly, there's the belt of truth. As we've seen, one of the main things that we know about the devil is that he is a liar. 
Jesus describes him as not holding to the truth. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so if, if the devil is going to come and lie to me about God, about myself, about God's world, then I need to arm myself with the truth. I need to constantly remind myself of what is true. Kevin and Sarah are going to be so glad that I'm not using them as, as a sermon illustration, me as a sermon illustration. Confession time. Not even my kids know this. A few, few nights ago, Michelle and I watched a romantic comedy, which better remain nameless. <laughs> but, but I must say that after watching it, I felt terrible. Uh, the morals and the ethics of the movie went totally against everything I believe about God's standards for marriage and sex within marriage and intimacy and love and relationship. And yet I was letting this entertain me for two hours. Now I know that we can't all stop watching movies or television series or Netflix, but we have to be careful if I'm spending two hours a day watching lies and only five minutes a day in God's Word or good Christian books or good Christian podcasts, reminding myself of what is really true, then I'm going to get myself into trouble. Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Secondly, there's the breastplate of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Mine? No. Not a righteousness of my own that comes from obeying a list of do's and don'ts, but a righteousness that comes from God. His declaring me not guilty because of Jesus' sacrifice for me. You see, how I define myself as a Christian is so important. When I've fallen into sin, the accuser comes to me and says, call yourself a Christian. You're, you're nothing but a loser. You're an adulterer. You're a thief. You're a glutton. You're a drunkard. You're an addict. You're lustful. And I can believe that, and I can think to myself, what's the point? I'll never change. Why not give in? But instead, I put on the breastplate of righteousness, and I remind myself of who I really am. I'm God's beloved son. I'm God's beloved daughter. I remind myself of those wonderful words in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for me so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. And that thought can keep me from sin. I no longer hear Satan saying, you're an addict, give it up. I hear Jesus saying, you're my son. And so I decide not to give in to that particular temptation because that course of action is unworthy of a child of the king. It doesn't mean that I brush my sin under the carpet. I need to keep on reminding myself of it and I need to keep on repenting of it. But I stop defining myself by it. I let my savior rather than my sin define who I am. So how do we mostly define ourselves this evening? As a husband, as a wife, employed, unemployed, gay, straight, I am God's child. And that makes all the difference in the world, his righteousness. Thirdly, there's a readiness 
to share the gospel with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And at the very end of this letter, we see Paul's own readiness to share the gospel. Verse 19, pray for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. So Paul is writing from prison. He's chained by three foot of chain to a Roman soldier, and yet he doesn't pray for comfort or release or safety. He says, pray that I can share the gospel as I should. When I share my faith with others, it solidifies God's truth within me. It helps my faith grow and deepen. There's a very interesting verse in the book of Revelation which speaks about those who have overcome the devil. And it says this, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. It's important to share God's word. Fourthly, there's the shield of faith. Uh, which is a lot more than just one of those little round Roman shields that you get in asterisks and obliques. It was more like a door. It was 1.2 meters high, 75 centimeters wide, covered the whole body, made of two pieces of wood glued together, covered with linen, bound with hide, then iron on the top and the bottom, and before the battle it was soaked in water uh, so that it would extinguish any of the fire animal, a- a- arrows rather, and animals that, they, <laughs> that the enemy would shoot. And as we've seen, uh, Satan shoots fiery arrows at us, the arrows of accusation, doubt, disobedience, rebellion, lust, malice, fear. And against those, I take up this shield of faith. Now again, as Grant pointed out to us, the Old Testament is very important to us. (laughs) Because throughout the Old Testament, we're told that God is our shield. Genesis chapter 15, God comes to Abram and says, Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. Or Psalm 3, But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory, the one who lifts up my head. So God is the shield. Faith in itself, certainly faith in faith, doesn't have any sort of magical defense against the devil, but faith in God, who is my shield allows me to take hold of the power and the protection of God. That when I'm faced with temptation, I go to him and say, Lord, I believe in you. Lord, I need your help. Lord, I need your protection. Number five, we've got the helmet of salvation. Did you know that Paul actually mentions the armor, God's armor, in two places in the New Testament here and in the book of Thessalonians? And in Thessalonians, he speaks about the hope of salvation as a helmet. Taking those two passages together then, we can say that when Satan accuses me, I set my mind at rest knowing that I'm saved in this life, but that one day I will finally be saved when I see Jesus face to face. It's a good thing to think about. Everything might not be okay at the moment. There may be struggles. There may be temptations, but I'm saved. I'm God's son, and one day I'll see him face to face. Number six, we have the sword of the Spirit. Paul tells us what that is, the the Word of God. And out of all the pieces of armor that we have, this is the only one that is used for attack as well as for defense. We spoke about the Word of God earlier when we spoke about arming ourselves with the truth. The truth about God, myself, and the others in the world is only found in God's Word. Jesus said, your Word is truth. 
You remember that Jesus himself, when he was tempted for 40 days in the desert, continually used the word of God against the devil. It is written, it is written, it is written. He used the sword. Some of you may have seen Christopher Nolan's film, Dunkirk. It tells the story of how ordinary British citizens uh, crossed the English Channel and helped evacuate hundreds of thousands of Allied troops who'd got stuck on those beaches. What had happened was the Allies were in France, uh, the German army sort of surrounded them, uh, drew them back right onto the very beaches, and then there was a sort of a pause. The, the Germans waited, not sure quite why, whether they were gathering their troops or whatever, but there was this pause, and then the German army was about to come down and wipe them off the face of the earth. And what wasn't shown in that movie was the fact that during that pause, a British naval officer sent a signal to London. The message was just three words long. It said this, but if not. It was picked up in London, and it was immediately understood. I wonder if you know the significance of those words, but if not. It comes from the Bible, from Daniel chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow down to the great statue King Nebuchadnezzar set up. King Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm going to throw you in a furnace. And these three men say to the king, we believe that God is able to save us, but if not... We want you to know we're not going to bow down or worship this idol you've set in place. And the message from Dunkirk to London was, we believe that God is able to rescue us, but if not, we'll still trust in him. And I'm not sure what is more remarkable, the faith of that British naval officer or the fact that his message was recognized and understood. Just three words from the Bible. And in those days, it was recognized, it was understood. Nowadays, we've got Christians who think that Dan and Beersheba were husband and wife, <laughs> like Sodom and Gomorrah, or that Noah's wife was Joan of Arc, <laughs> or that an epistle is a female apostle. <laughs> this book is our only weapon. God comes to Joshua and says, don't let it depart from your mouth. It's the only way to fight. And we've got to do this for ourselves. Imagine if I were to take you out to McDonald's and halfway through the meal I said to you, would you like some of my hamburger? And you not being too squeamish thought, well, okay. And then I were to say to you, would you like me to chew it for you first? What would you think? And yet we do that with God's word. We let other people chew it for us. We don't necessarily read it ourselves. We've never tried to read Zachariah or any of those books. We don't study it. We don't memorize it. And we wonder why we're defeated. And we could memorize just a couple of verses around the particular problem that we have, whether it's with depression or whatever your particular sin is or weaknesses or something that you struggle with, just to memorize a passage of Scripture and set our hearts at rest when we face that particular temptation. And then finally, this prayer. Paul says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. The word saint in the New Testament is a word that refers to you and to me, to all Christians, not especially good people who are dead. We're not to pray to all the saints. We're to pray for all the saints. Not enough to put on the armor of God, but 
to be in constant communication with the God of the armor. How, how do I know if I'm being strong in the Lord and in his mighty power? Well, it's by whether or not I pray. Because if I believe that I can handle life with its problems, that through my own resources, my intelligence, my wealth, my plans will carry me through, then I won't pray. But if I acknowledge that I'm weak and needy, and God is strong, then I'll pray. And in so doing, I'll rely on the Lord and on his mighty power. Can I encourage us this week just to get up a few minutes earlier and to go through this exercise? Start off the day reminding myself, there is a battle. Spend a few minutes reading God's word, praying to him. Remind myself of some important truths. Maybe even write down a list of truths I want to remember. I am loved. I am forgiven. I'm God's beloved son. I'm God's beloved daughter. I'm saved. I'm clothed in Jesus' righteousness. Jesus has fought the battle for me. If I do that on a regular basis, it'll allow me to stand. Paul uses that word stand four times in these verses. He doesn't want us to be wobbly Christians. He wants us to be able to stand against the devil's attack and to stand when the day of evil comes, which speaks about a time of special pressure. Just one final thing as we close. That phrase, all the saints, is so important and so wonderful. Reminds me that I'm not involved in some kind of private spiritual conflict, but that together we're involved in this battle. That Roman shield I spoke about a moment ago wasn't simply used alone. It was often used together with the other soldiers. The Romans would hold their shield in front and behind on all four sides and above to create the famous Roman testudo, or tortoise. It was so strong that sometimes they would test the testudo by driving a horse and chariot on top. We're strong when we fight this battle together. And if you haven't done so already tonight with all of the opportunities we've had, <laughs> and you're struggling, may I encourage you to use the body of Christ. Use that belt of truth. Stop hiding in the darkness. Stop pretending. Talk with a fellow brother or sister and come and receive the help and the healing that God brings through his family. And so, let's be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Let's put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, we may be able to stand our ground and after we've done everything, to stand.